Well, thank you very much, and Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year. I hope you had a good Christmas. Um, we had a great time. I did have a, I did have a spot of man flu, um, so things were a bit touch and go there for a while. But uh, no, we had a great Christmas seeing family and friends and eating lots of meat and um, no Brussels sprouts whatsoever. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And uh, the Christmas Day gravy was outstanding. If you weren't at our carol services, you have no idea why I'm saying that. But and there were lots of Quality Street as well, low, an, an abundance of Quality Street. So I don't know about you, but we does everybody get a tub of Quality Street at Christmas or a few tubs? Yeah, do you get it any other time of year? No, it's, it seems to be a Christmas thing, but we certainly were surrounded by Quality Street. And um, I did see a really fascinating program over Christmas about how each of the individual Quality Street sweets are made. And, um, but my family pointed out to me that it might only be me that's fascinated by that, so I won't go into that too much. But I do have a, a key question to start off the new year with, and it's this: What is your favourite quality street? The the fudge. Interesting, interesting. I haven't had that yet. The fudge, the green one. Which green one? The block or the triangle? Triangle. Okay, purple one. Yep. Uh, is who here really likes the orange and strawberry creams? That's a, that's a bit of a, an opinion divider, I think. I like them. My preference would be you always go for the orange crisp first. Uh, toffee pennies? Yes, yes. Is there anybody here who likes the blue one? Okay. There are always some. No. That's, um, that's actually not a very important question. What I do, I do have an important question to kick off this year with, though, and it's this. Who have you blessed this week? Who have you blessed this month? Remember bless? Yeah. So for those who don't know what I mean by bless, um, do make sure at the end of the meeting you pick up from over here. We've got all these bless lists on the wall. We've also got on the tables a bless pocket guide, which explains what bless is really well. But just by way of a brief reminder, bless is one of the primary ways that we as a church, as individuals, pursue the mission God has given us to reach the thousands of people in this town with the gospel of Jesus Christ on the basis that we all have people in our lives who don't know him and they all have people in their lives as well. And BLESS stands for five very simple missional practices and I'm going to test you. So B, what does B stand for? Begin with prayer. I can see some of you sitting there thinking, I'm not joining in with this game. (laughs) Begin with prayer. So pray Commit to pray every day. Write a list of people in your life who don't know Jesus and commit to pray for them every day. That's B. L? Listen. So when we're with people, spend more time listening than speaking. Focus on that because when we spend more time speaking, we have a tendency to try and force our own agenda into the conversation. But when you listen to people, you hear about what's going on in their life and their hurts and their struggles and the things they love and where God's already at work in their life. So listen. E? Eat together. So eat together because when you... When you spend time sitting down together over a meal or over a coffee, whatever it is, you build relationship in a deeper way. You just do. And you get great opportunities to listen as well. So, you know, eat missionally, I think, as Rich said, eat for Jesus. It's a great line. Eat for Jesus. Um, S, serve. Okay, so when you are regularly praying for people and you're listening to them and you're eating together, they'll tell you how to love them. And the opportunities to serve them and be like Jesus to them will arise. And then the second S, story. Share your story. Because when you're doing those first four steps regularly, 
the opportunity will arise for you to share your story. People will ask you, what, you know, about your own story of faith. And we do all have a story. It might not be very dramatic, but you have a story. And it's the most powerful thing that you have. And so share your story. Now, these are, these are things that any one of us can do. It's very simple. And they're things that we must do if we take seriously the mission that God has given us. And it was great during the series to hear all the stories of answered prayer and encouraging conversations, breakthroughs, really unexpected breakthroughs in the lives of friends and family members. And it all resulted from getting really intentional, even in that short space of time, about pursuing these blessed practices. But something we were very keen to emphasize during the series, which is why I'm bringing it up again now, is that this is meant to be a long-term thing that goes way beyond the series. Because building relationships is a long-term thing. We've got to be in this for the long haul and keep pursuing bless in the long term. Now, if you've got out of the routine, like I did over Christmas, the routine of bless, because Christmas can be a bit of a fog of just disorientation, can't it? And you get out of routine in all sorts of ways. But if you got out of routine, just get back on it. Get back into routine of pursuing at least one of those blessed practices every day. And do whatever it takes to do that. So set an alarm on your phone or a reminder every day to, at a good time when you're going to be able to pray. Or take one of the blessed bookmarks, if you use bookmarks, and write the names on there and put it in your book. Uh, or use one of the cards or one of the, write your own list and stick it on your mirror or somewhere prominent that's going to remind you. Do whatever it takes to get back into the routine. Why? Well, firstly, because those names on your list are not just names. They're people who are precious to God, and so they better be precious to us as well. He came for them. He died for them. He loves them, and he's put you in their lives to point them towards him. And if you don't do it, who else will? So it's important like that, but it's also because it works. It's effective. Bless works. You know, that's why we heard all those stories that we had over that series. And, and we want to keep hearing your stories, keep sharing stories, that this becomes something that we talk about whenever we're together in small groups or in serving teams or whenever we're together in any capacity, that we're talking to each other about bless and about stories of what's going on with people in our lives. Let's make it a part of our, our lives. It works. It's effective. You know, the number of people I spoke to, um, church people who I spoke to at the carol services, who said, I can't believe that these people, people who I invited, this time they've actually come. I spoke to a number of people like that and I said, well, are they on your blessed list? Yeah. It works. It's powerful. It's very simple. But prayer is powerful. Prayer works. Bless works. Eight out of the ten people on my blessed list came to Carols at Kings. And some of them brought others with them as well. And that, that's never happened for me before. And I don't say it to make myself look good. I say it to encourage you to say, keep going with this. Because it's effective, it's powerful, and I want to keep pursuing it with them because I want them to meet Jesus like I have. So let's keep going. And, but another thing that we emphasize during the Blessed series, which links to what I'm going to talk about today from Colossians 2, and it also links to the focus and the theme of this term, uh, which I'll come to in a minute, is the importance of living out your story now. That your story is not just a historical event, something that happened, something that God did in your life once a long time ago, but it's something you're living now, that the the hope you have in Christ is evident in your life right now, that you're living a transformed life, and a, a life that causes people to ask, you know, what is it about you? What do you have that I don't have? What What's this peace I see in you? What's this freedom? What's this joy that I see in you? What is it about you? It's important to be living out our story now, because you can't give away what you haven't got. And so this term, we've got a couple of different speaking series coming up. Um, 
we've got a couple of standalone Sundays coming over the next two weeks. So next week, Ron's going to be talking about overseas mission. And then we've got a cap Sunday with a guest speaker. And then at the end of January, we start a five-week series called More. And um, this series is, is experience more of God. It's focusing on the fact that faith, our faith, is not just a theoretical thing to be sort of studied in your head. It is a relationship to be experienced and to be enjoyed And we need to experience God more. We need to enjoy him more. We need more of his peace in our lives. We need more of his joy and more of his power, more of his uh, abundant generosity in our lives. And so there'll be a focus there on encountering God and living an experiential faith. Then we have a series called Journey to the Cross, which will run through Lent and take us up to Easter. And it will be using some of the prayers from the Psalms. And Lent is a great time for a bit of self-examination. To just see where have I got out of shape in my walk with God and and the chance to realign as we lead up and prepare for Easter and that celebration of what happened at Easter. So this term is really about checking and strengthening our foundations. The foundations upon which my life sits, my story, my faith rests. Not to take the focus off reaching out but so that when we do reach out, we reach out from a firm and sure foundation as people who are walking in step with God and who are living our stories now. And so today, I'm going to look at two verses from Colossians 2 as a kind of underpinning of all of that and to launch us into this term. So I'm going to look at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae, and he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, these two verses are really a great summary of the whole letter. It really does kind of encapsulate in two verses what the whole letter to the Colossians is about. Bit of background to it this isn't a church that Paul himself had planted, he never visited Colossae as far as we know. Um, It was planted by an associate of Paul's called Epaphras and other converts that resulted from Paul's missionary journey. So this is a church that's very close to Paul's heart, even though he didn't himself plant it. And Paul's writing this letter from prison, and Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison to tell him all about this Colossian church and how well they were doing, but also to tell him about the cultural pressures that this church were facing, the things that were there that threatened to draw them away from Jesus. And so Paul writes to the church, one, to encourage them, say, you're doing so well. I hear such good things about you. Well done, keep going. But also to remind them of some key truths to help them to stand up to those pressures that they're facing, the cultural pressures. And there were two main pressures that they were facing. One was the fact that these new Christians in Colossae had grown up in a Greco-Roman culture of polytheism and mysticism. And so the temptation was that Jesus, you just take Jesus as just another one of many, many different gods. And he's just another deity to worship. That was the temptation there. That was the threat. The second pressure was from the Jewish Christian community who were trying to teach the new Christian non-Jews that to complete their commitment to Christ, they had to follow all the laws of the Torah, the Jewish law, get circumcised, have a kosher diet. Um, observe their rituals, observe their sacred days and all that kind of thing. And so Paul's writing to this church to counter those pressures, to counter both of those pressures with truth. Say, no, this is what is true. That Jesus is not just another deity. 
he triumphed over all other spiritual powers in his death and resurrection. And that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish law. He fulfilled the Torah on our behalf. He did everything that was needs to be done. The law lacks the power to change anybody's heart. But what Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection, that lacks nothing. This is what Paul is telling them. It lacks nothing. So you don't need to add. You can't add. You shouldn't try to add to what Jesus did, to what he's done, how that affects you. He has fulfilled God's law. He's fulfilled it all completely. The whole of the law points to him. He is the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul's writing these truths to this church in this letter to counter those cultural pressures. Now, what are the cultural pressures that we face that try to draw us away from Jesus or threaten to draw us away from Jesus? I mean, there are many. I think we still live in a polytheistic society, even though it wouldn't describe itself like that. But we're surrounded by so-called gods and idols that will try to compete for that number one position in your heart. They'll try to compete, they'll try to dislodge Jesus from his rightful position as king of our lives so he just becomes a bolt-on in our lives. Somebody to be consulted when we're in trouble. Now that might be shown through where you take good things, things that are really good in themselves, like your career or your family, but you turn them into ultimate things. You take a good thing, but you make it an ultimate thing in your heart. The thing that you give yourself to, the thing you pour yourself out for, but things that ultimately will let you down in a way that Jesus never will. Because you, you can lose your job, you won't be able to work forever, you, your family won't last forever. You know, those things will end up letting you down. So don't take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, because ultimately that will destroy it. But it might also be the things that the world promises will bring fulfillment and satisfaction. You know, sex, money, power leisure, materialism, all of those kind of things that promise very much, but they ultimately deliver emptiness. So it might be those kind of things, the pressures that we face that draw us away from Jesus. But also, I think, there is another cultural pressure. So one of the pressures they faced was from the Jewish Christians to conform to the Jewish way of living. We face a pressure, a cultural pressure to conform, not so much to behavior, but to a way of thinking. And it's under the so-called guise of liberalism and tolerance, even though it's the most intolerant way of thinking that there is. And it's, it's the things that all reasonable people believe nowadays about sexuality, about gender, about politics, and all sorts of things. And if you don't conform, then you are this kind of a person. You're put in a box over here. If you don't conform to the current views of sexuality and gender, then you're committing a hate crime. You're a bigoted person who is committing a hate crime. And social media is a very, very powerful tool in this, in reinforcing this populist view of things and then marginalising at the same time, marginalising and shaming those who don't line up with that point of view. And so, of course, the temptation and the pressure is to conform to the thinking of the world, even when that's in direct opposition to what the Bible says, to take what the Bible says and try to make it fit into our culture today. And sometimes that just doesn't work because there is a clash of cultures. So how do we stand up against that? There are lots of other pressures we face, but those are some of them. How do we stand up against that pressure? Well, what we do is we stand up against it by reminding ourselves of what is solid, eternal truth and what is fleeting subjectivity masquerading as truth. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this. He says, it is striking to see 
that the opposition to Christian belief in each age changes radically from century to century. The existentialists of the 20th century were horrified by the views of the utilitarians of the early 19th century, who in turn mocked the beliefs of the deists of the 18th century. Don't worry if you don't know what those mean. This is the point. In every generation, skeptics speak of what all intelligent people believe now. And yet it's always sharply different from that which was taken as self-evident by the same kind of people just a few decades before. The racial views and discourse of our great-grandparents is offensive to us today, but almost certainly today's reigning views of race, sex and gender will be seen as laughable or outrageous by our own great-grandchildren. It's hard to imagine because the opponents of Christianity in each era are sure that they have finally arrived at the Enlightenment. That is never the case. Non-belief is notoriously unstable. Skeptical views go out of date very fast. Now compare that, contrast that with the unchanging truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know which one I want to build my life on. The gospel every time, because it doesn't change. It is solid, it is unshakable. And so in this letter to the Colossians, Paul is reminding them of what is true, what is eternally true to counter all the cultural pressures that they're facing. And we must do the same for ourselves, continue to remind ourselves of what is true. And I'll come to that a bit later. But let's have a closer look at these two verses that we're focusing on today. Paul starts by saying, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of receiving Christ, when you receive Christ. So for me, I'd be tempted to think of the moment in March 1994 when I encountered God. He came into my life in a very powerful way in a church building in Horsham. That was the moment that changed my life forever. I was born again. It changed me. Now, you might not have had an encounter like that, but maybe you can remember a time when you invited Jesus to come into your life. You know there was that moment. You invited him in. He said, Jesus, I want you to come in and be Lord of my life. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of receiving Jesus. And I think probably most of us would think of receiving Jesus in that way, as that moment when almost like the transaction was done, the deal was done. But actually receiving Christ here in Colossians means a lot more than that. Because receiving would have been understood by the original recipients of this letter as referring to the transmission of teaching, a body of teaching from one person to another or from one generation to another. And in the next verse, Paul says, be strengthened in the faith just as you were taught. So it kind of backs up there what he is saying. And so what the Colossians, when it says when you received Christ, what the Colossians received was Paul's account of the gospel truths. The teaching about Jesus' death for their sins and that he rose on the third day and the proclamation of Jesus as Lord, which then led, that teaching they received, led to their confession of faith and submitting their hearts to Christ and beginning a new spiritual life as members of Christ's body. It's the same as when Paul says to the Corinthians in another letter. He says, for what I received... Same verb, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Now, what was it he received? It was this body of teaching that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, and there's proof of it. I can prove it to you because he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And he he goes on. Now, this, this may seem like a minor a minor point, a minor distinction. Actually, I think it's a really important distinction between what we think of as receiving Christ, that that moment, and actually what Paul means by receiving Christ. Because what Paul is saying to the Colossians is that the teaching that they received, 
that body of teaching they received of what Jesus did and what Jesus said, as witnessed by many people, that provides a crucial foundation for their faith. In contrast with the the kind of mystical religions and various deities they're surrounded by, the story of Christianity is rooted in solid truth, in history. It's rooted in history, it's rooted in fact. And so I think that places a great importance for us to have a solid foundation of teaching, to be reminding ourselves constantly of the truth of the gospel and to have a good understanding of the gospel, what it means, what, what it is, and to be teaching that gospel, the full gospel, to others, not just focusing on leading people to a moment, as important as those moments are. And don't get me wrong, they are, they are very important. I'm so grateful to God that he came into my life in that way, in that powerful way, in that powerful moment that he came into my life. But you know what? I'm also so, so grateful for the people who followed up with me who took the time to explain the gospel to me, to unpack the scriptures over the weeks and the months that followed, because I didn't really have an understanding of what had happened to me in that moment. It was a powerful encounter moment, but I didn't really know what it meant or what had happened. And so that one moment would not have been an adequate foundation for me to continue to live in this faith, as Paul goes on to say. So there's a sense in which the gospel needs to be learned, it needs to be understood in order to be received, to receive Christ without taking away from the importance of an encounter moment. I think it's also important, though, this distinction is important, because Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you received him as Lord, to receive someone as Lord, you need to have a pretty good understanding of what that means and who this person is. Because for the Colossians to say, Jesus is Lord, that's a big thing. They're in the Roman Empire, where Caesar is Lord, It's a very dangerous thing to proclaim anybody else's Lord. That's why Paul is in prison, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. But also, in their context, it meant that Jesus couldn't be just one of many deities. Because he is Lord. He's the Lord. So this is massive for the Colossians. And when you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, when you bind yourself to him as Lord of your life, you also bind yourself to being obedient to him completely obedient to him. Now, I wonder how many times, how often we remind ourselves of that particular aspect. Or how often do we say, yeah, Jesus is Lord, without really appreciating just what we're saying. Or how often do we speak to others outside the church about receiving Jesus as Lord? We like to speak of him as Savior, which he is, because that's a lot more attractive, but it's not the full gospel. To receive Jesus as Lord is not only to accept the truth of the gospel and receive its benefits for yourself, it is also to submit your life, your whole life to him. You know, Jesus can only be our saviour because he is Lord, because he has unquestioned authority over the powers of evil and darkness. He utterly defeated them at the cross, as it says in verse 15 of chapter 2. And so to truly receive, because Jesus can only be saviour because he is Lord, to truly receive him implies his right to rule. It implies his lordship. It implies his right to be the Lord and the king of your life. And therefore, that he gets to determine, not you, he gets to determine what is right, what is wrong, and what is a worthy and consistent way of living for him. If you claim to have received his salvation 
but you live in a way that is entirely inconsistent with all of his commands. It's a bit like saying, look, Jesus, I want your benefits, but I don't want you. I I, I want want salvation from the penalty for my sins. I don't really want salvation from my sins, though, because I enjoy them too much. I want benefit. I don't want you. That's what you're saying. No, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And if you've received him as Lord, if that's what you say to him, then you also say, Jesus, you get to call the shots. You get to call the shots in my life, and I will obey you regardless of the cost. Because we can trust him. He is trustworthy. He has shown that. He's utterly trustworthy. It's making him Lord over every aspect and every area of your life. Are there parts of your life that you hold back from him as if you can't trust him with that? You can trust him. If there are parts of your life you're holding back from Jesus and from his lordship, you need to repent and you need to give it over to him and say, Lord, have your way in my life. It might feel like a risk, but with Jesus it's not because he's utterly trustworthy. And so Paul says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. He's saying, receiving Christ is not the destination, it's the beginning of a new life. Foundations don't exist just for themselves, they exist to be built upon. And so he's saying, your growth and your progress in the Christian life must be consistent with its beginnings. You, 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 to, to live out the Christian life in a way that is worthy of the Lord. And Paul lists four characteristics of what that means, and I'm, I'm only going to really talk about one of them. But he says, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Just briefly on thankfulness. Try to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness. You know, thankfulness is a sure sign of God's activity in your life. And it's a great weapon against all sorts of things. It's a great weapon against the attack of the enemy, against envy of others, against anxiety, against depression, against all sorts of things. Thankfulness. So try to cultivate an attitude of thankfulness in your life. But I just want to focus in on that rooted metaphor. Where he says, continue to live in him, rooted in him. Paul is saying that what believers have been taught about the gospel, what they've received, the receiving of Christ as Lord, that has rooted them in the faith. You're rooted in the fertile soil of the gospel, of Jesus himself. And it's like in Jeremiah 17, where it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. You know, this is someone who can go through trials, who can go through lean times, dry times, and still thrive and still flourish because of where their roots are planted You, if you have received Christ as Lord, you are rooted in Christ. And it's the best soil. It's where it has all the nutrients you need. It has everything you need. It's watered by the river of God's Holy Spirit. And so continue to put your roots down deeper and deeper into Christ, into that good soil, by, as I've said before, reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel. Continually reminding yourself that you were utterly, utterly without hope. 
You were in darkness. You didn't even know it. You were lost in your sin. You were planted in rocky soil, withering, dying, perishing. You were heading for eternal separation from God. But he took the initiative in his love to come as one of us, to come and live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died so that he could take you and plant you in this new good soil so that he could receive you into his kingdom as his son, as his daughter, just as you receive him as Lord. I read this on a a blog post this week, and I just thought it was a glorious description of just part of the gospel. This is how John Calvin in the 16th century put it. He said, this is the exchange which out of his measureless goodness he has made with us. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking our weakness upon himself, he has strengthened us by his power. That having received our mortality, he has given us his immortality. That descending to earth, he's prepared and ascent to heaven for us. That becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. Wow, that is glorious, isn't it? Put your roots down into that and drink deeply of it because it's true. It is true, this gospel truth that we've received, it's rooted in history. It's rooted in the witness of transformed lives. He is where you get your identity and your value and your acceptance and your significance and your security and your purpose in life. When we look to other things and we turn to other things for a sense of meaning and significance and and purpose in life, it's a bit like yanking your roots out of good soil and trying to get your nourishment from a bunch of rocks. It doesn't work. You will wither. You will shrivel up. It doesn't work. Continue to be rooted in him just as you started out when you received him as Lord. So a plant needs good soil to grow and to flourish. But it also needs a good environment with lots of light, lots of warmth. It needs a greenhouse. And so if Jesus is the soil, then the church is the greenhouse. Because he's placed you in the church. He's designed you for this. He's designed you to live alongside others, to live alongside his people so that we can love one another, so that we can encourage one another, we can feed one another, we can give light to one another, and sometimes we can gently prune one another to help each other keep our roots deeply embedded in the soil of the gospel and to help each other to grow and to flourish. And you know that doesn't happen in an hour and a half each Sunday or one in two Sundays, or one in three Sundays, or one in four Sundays, or whatever your frequency of attendance is. I'm not saying Sundays are not important. They're vitally important. Just this morning, I, in that worship time, I, it was like seeing him for the first time again. It was so powerful. I wouldn't miss this for the world. Don't miss it. Don't miss being together with God's people like this. Don't casually miss out. But it doesn't happen. It's not the whole church. It doesn't all happen on a Sunday morning. So Francis Chan, a pastor in San Francisco, he tells the story of an ex-gang member who he baptized and who was really involved in the church and then he wasn't there anymore. And somebody saw him um, a few months later and said, oh, how come you're not at the church anymore? And he said, well, I didn't understand church. Because when I was baptized, I thought it was like being inducted into the gang where they were my family 24-7. I didn't know it was just somewhere we attended on Sundays. And he says, Francis Chan says, that just broke his heart when he heard that, that the gangs were a better picture of family than the church of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, there are so many barriers 
in our society and in our culture to the church being family. There are so many barriers, barriers of time, barriers of of busyness, barriers of individualism, this individualistic culture we live in, even barriers, as we talked about at the beginning of last year, barriers of multiculturalism. There are many barriers to the church being family, but we have to find ways of overcoming those barriers and not conforming to the pattern of the world. Because as the church, we are to be involved in each other's lives, just like family. Because Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, because they'll see how well you love one another. It will shine out. It will be evidence to the world how you love one another. Now, of course, you can't be involved in every single person's life in the church. There are too many people here, but there's another two meetings as well. You can't be involved in everybody's life. But that's why small groups are so important. We talk about small groups all the time. We're launching our new small group sign up for this term today. And I'd encourage you, get involved. Sign up. Get stuck in. Now, I'm not saying that signing up for a small group, being in a small group, automatically equals being in the church, in the life of the church, like I'm describing. It doesn't automatically equal church as family by virtue of being in a small group. Because we can be very good at compartmentalizing our lives. You know, I've done the Sunday church bit, tick. Done the small group bit, tick. Hour and a half here, hour and a half there. The rest of my life is my own. We can be very good at that and feel good about ourselves. I'm being a good Christian because I'm going to those things. No, no, there's no automatic guarantee of church as family by being in a small group. But being in a small group is a really important starting point for church as family. For knowing others and for taking the risk of being known yourselves. Don't let church be like Facebook, where you can put up what you want. You can put up your best photos. The you that you want the world to see and be envious of by just presenting one version of yourself for an hour and a half on a Sunday or an hour and a half at small group. No, true family and true relationships, true community go way beyond the formal meeting times. And yeah, it can be very messy and it can be downright inconvenient being in other people's lives and having them in your life. And some people can just be irritating. Really irritating. When they're in your lives like that. It can be messy when you're in each other's lives. And you start to see what someone is really like. Maybe the mask starts to slip a little bit. And actually they see what you are really like. With all your flaws and all your struggles. But you find that they love you. In spite of it. You find they love you anyway because they know the love of Christ and you find supernaturally that you can love them, even the really irritating ones. Because you have received the supernatural love of Christ. And you find when you're in community like that, when you know church as family in that way, you find that when you're in need, people are there to provide. When you're falling apart, people are there to hold you up and put you back together. When you're doubting, people are there to remind you of what is true, to support you. People, when you mourn, people are there to mourn with you. When you're celebrating, people celebrate with you. Who's experienced that? Life in the church like that. But you've got to keep working in it. Because you can have, you can have known that and then suddenly find yourself isolated. Because you've just got complacent about building relationships with people. You might never have known church like that. And again, you've got to work at this. You've got to to be intentional about being involved in the life of others, being involved in community. You've got to be intentional about family. 
I hear so many stories of where the church has just been magnificent people. Sometimes you hear stories where it's, I'm so disappointed in the church because they weren't there for me. Well, who do you mean? Who do you mean? Whose life are you in? Who are you connected with? Who, who are you encouraging in their faith? And who is encouraging you in your faith? We need one another. We need one another. It's the church. It's messy. It can be inconvenient. It can be frustrating. But when it works, it's glorious. It's the most glorious place on earth. And it is Jesus' plan for you. And it's his design for you. And there is no plan B. Because Jesus loves his church. As imperfect as it is. Because he's making it perfect. He's making his church into this radiant bride without blemish. He loves his church. He's building his church. It's the greenhouse in which you can grow to all the fullness God has for you as long as you are planted in that soil of the gospel. And so let me encourage you, be in. Be in. Be in the greenhouse. Take the risk of being known. And you can start today by signing up for a small group. But it is only a start. It's just a start and really knowing others and really being known yourself. But be in the greenhouse and for more than an hour and a half each week. Take every opportunity this term through the teaching, through Sunday mornings, through small groups, through whatever it is, through being together to be grounded and rooted in Christ, to be someone who's reaching out from a firm and sure foundation, reaching out using bless but standing on this sure foundation of Jesus in your life, someone who's living their story now with the light and the life of Christ radiating from them. As Paul said, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to live in him rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Richard.